for uh, for this week's episode, we uh, decided, well, maybe everybody was busy with Thanksgiving. Who knows? But as we're all gathering or not gathering and isolating for Thanksgiving, uh, we decided to, to be thankful for the listeners who have um, allowed us to do this show for the past uh, 40 weeks now and spend a little more time focusing on some of the questions that you have sent in. Um, every week we get questions for our guests um, and we deliver your questions to our guests every single week, but um, without fail every week. Some questions come in specifically for me. We set those aside and, you know don't answer them, but uh, the producers this week have grabbed many <laughs> questions that have been sent in for me over the past 40 weeks. And, um, and I'm going to try to address some of those for, the, for y'all who are listening this week. Um, and we're just going to get right to it. And we're going to make this our special holiday Thanksgiving episode. Thankful for those listeners who have been with us for the entire time that we've been um, trying to figure out how the heck we're going to get along. Um, and as our thank you to you, uh, I'm going to try to answer some of your questions. I haven't read all of these. They just sent them to me this afternoon. Um, I'm going to I'm going to hear them for the first time as you hear them too. David from Seattle um, asks, this was a good one to start with, what made you first decide to run for office? Would you again? Um, You know, to be completely honest, I decided to run for office mostly because I was a little bit frustrated with the fact that the the incumbent in the district that I lived in had ignored her opponent in 2012. She had refused to debate him. She had um, pretty much ignored the fact that she had an opponent. I lived in a very gerrymandered district, um, one of the weirdest shaped districts I think anyone had ever seen uh, that, that spanned 150 miles east to west and was completely not contiguous at all. And she had been living, she had been running and working in this gerrymandered district and had really never had to account for anything that she had said or done because all she had to do was make sure that she was on the ballot as a Republican. And in 2012, she completely ignored the opponent. The opponent tried his hardest to get her to um, debate him. She wouldn't debate. She wouldn't do interviews with the papers. And I kind of made a side comment to a friend of mine, hell, try to ignore me, damn it. <laughs> and, I, you know, just kind of jokingly that I was going to run to to force her to to see if she thought she could ignore me. And, you know, you said I said that one too many times to a few people who <laughs> got more excited about it than I was, honestly. And I eventually realized, you know, okay, well, this is a valid exercise that even though it may not be a district that I could run in, it could win in because it was so gerrymandered, at the very least, we would run and hold her accountable and make her um, make her have to debate me. And she did. Uh, she still won. But um, she did lose her primary almost immediately. Um, so would I run again? Uh, you know, I had a very specific reason for doing that. Um, I, as as anyone who listens to this knows, I'm very interested in the political process and politics and, and policy and all of these issues that we talk about every week on this show. But I don't necessarily have a specific desire to be in Congress. Um, I ran in 2014 because I saw a specific need that I might be able to fill um, or a specific thing that I might be able to do that others wouldn't be able to do, uh, force her to show up. <laughs> um, and that's why I ran. 
if I saw that happen again, if I saw a, something that I felt I could do that others couldn't, then yes, I'd be open to running again. But I don't have a desire specifically to to run for office simply for the sake of, run, for, of running for office. Sam from Joliet, Illinois, I guess. Um, why do you think so many people seem to split their ticket? Huh. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who just didn't like Donald Trump, right? <laughs> That was, was the most elect, most most voted in election in U.S. history, um, and it wasn't necessarily even as much as I love him. It wasn't necessarily because Joe Biden was some transformative candidate who people got excited about in the way they did about Barack Obama in '08. It was because they were excited about Trump. So I think a lot of people went and voted um, for Joe Biden to get rid of Donald Trump, and then remained Republicans down the line. Let's see here. Trish from Miami. How would you describe the splits you've seen within the Democrat and Republican parties? Gosh, I'm going to get on a tear here. I'm going to get a soapbox. Uh, there are, we are living in a time when the voices of the most extreme parts of each party are able to be amplified in ways that they haven't in, you know, certainly in my lifetime. Um, the most extreme parts of the, of the right wing, folks whose opinions were, you know, kind of kept to themselves for decades, um, are able to find a platform on Twitter or Parler. Um, and folks are able to find themselves, you know, Heck, you might have been the only racist in your neighborhood <laughs> 20 years ago and didn't realize that other people agreed with you. Um, but when you get on Twitter, there's always somebody who's going to agree with you. And it's the same, it's the same situation on the left. There, some, of these, some of these opinions that are not completely unreasonable, but aren't necessarily mainstream or moderation opinions – you know, they get amplified. I, I, I used to tell, say, when I was um, on the campaign trail, I talked about how, you know, when I was growing up, I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to date myself and be old here, but I'm not that old. <laughs> but when I was growing up, and anybody who's, uh, who's 35 and older might remember, the TV that we had in our house had four channels that came in clear. We had CBS, ABC, NBC and PBS, and the Fox station was on that bottom knob. Um, so if on Monday night you wanted to watch a comedy, there was really only one choice. CBS had the comedies that night, and you wanted to watch a drama, you had ABC, and you wanted to watch sports, you had NBC. And that's, you know, we all kind of sat around the TV as a nation, and we had just those choices. On the radio, you want country, you're going to listen to this channel. You want pop, you're going to listen to this channel. Rock, you're listen to this channel. And you, and you kind of get what's given to you. Now, I have, we all have not just as many channels as we want, but with Netflix and Hulu and YouTube, if you want to watch an elephant making friends with a bunny rabbit, and that's what you're in the mood for. You can get exactly what you want. And as a society, we have gone from a period of time where we all had to, you know, we had choices, comedy, drama, sports, educational stuff. And then we watched what was available to us to where we can find exactly what we want whenever we want it 
no matter how obscure and esoteric it is. And I think we have gotten so accustomed to getting exactly what we want that we have stopped learning how to do the basic compromising um, that we used to do. And and I'd go back to even less than 20 years ago when I was on American Idol. You know, Idol had up to 40 million viewers the night Ruben won. That's unheard of now. There's nothing that gets 40 million viewers that's not the Super Bowl or a presidential debate. And we don't have that anymore. Everything is so compartmentalized. And I think we have sort of allowed ourselves to forget that we're a part of a country of 330 million people. And unfortunately, we're not all going to get exactly what we want. So we're going to have to learn as a Democrat party to figure out what the Democrats stand for or what the Republicans stand for. And the reason that we're seeing splits is because, you know, if we, if we can't all settle on one TV show, we're certainly not all going to settle on one of two broad, broad parties. And I think that we're starting to see that division now. We've talked about needing more than two parties, <laughs> that that a two-party system is probably not the best way to govern in the past. I think we're getting closer to a point where we're going to see a viable third party eventually because there's just – there are too many people to satisfy in, in these two parties we have. Um, Sandy from Portland, Oregon <laughs> asks, out of all of your guests so far, who would be your running mate? <laughs> oh, God. Um, well, first of all, I have absolutely, I, I answered the question earlier about whether I would run for um, office again, sort of vaguely. Let me be unequivocal. I do not want to be president of the United States at all. Um, God, who would it be? Well, let's see. It wouldn't be Richard Painter because he yells too much um, and gets too angry easily. Wouldn't be Tommy Lahren because as much as I find her a sweet person, she's a little crazy on her policies. Um Gosh, that's tough. I, I don't. I don't talk to people on this show, <laughs> trying to size them up in this way. I do have a special affinity for Michael Steele. He probably couldn't be my running mate because he and I disagree on so many things on a policy level. But he's somebody who I think is incredibly principled. And and you know, as much as I disagree with him, and I imagine I'll probably disagree with him even more now that Joe Biden is in office. You know, I believe that he. Sorry, I believe that he has, you know, the integrity to to not just toe the party line, um, and I like that about him. Um, I also am a big fan of John Heilman, so I might have to throw him in there too. But he's not interested in running for anything either. Anna from San Antonio, what was the most surprising thing about being a candidate for Congress? It is disgusting. And Anna Paulina Luna and I talked about this two weeks ago. It is disgusting how much raising money is a part of running for Congress. If I had run my campaign in the typical congressional campaign way, all I would have done would have been sat in a room for 40 hours and make phone calls to strangers and ask them for money. I think that is a disgusting way to run a campaign or a political system, and I... I'm not changing my position on that. Um, Danny from New York City. Do you see the Republicans doubling down on the MAGA agenda? 
I think Republicans probably have to figure out what the hell the MAGA agenda is first. Um, it has it has survived for four years um, on nothing more than a slogan, simply because Donald Trump was a you know kind of had a cult of personality. If Donald Trump doesn't know what the MAGA agenda is, and he didn't while he was president, he really didn't have an agenda um, other than to attack <laughs> Democrats, um, then I don't know that Republicans will know either. It was interesting to me today, Marco Rubio came out and attacked Joe Biden's cabinet appointees that he has is, he is named already. Um, he attacked them as being... Elites who went to Ivy League universities, which, of course, to anybody paying attention, was incredibly ironic considering pretty much all of Donald Trump's cabinet went to Ivy League universities. And in fact, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the first administration since the Truman administration where neither the president nor the vice president went to an elite university. Um, You know, and that to me was just sort of indicative of... You know, Marco Rubio's probably going to run in 2024. I don't think he knows what the Republican brand is. I have seen him try to talk about how the Republicans need to reach out more to the working class. That's a great idea. That's a wonderful strategy. But how does that strategy of working, of reaching out to the working class and being opposed to free trade that Trump espoused and now Marco Rubio is trying to espouse, how does that line up with tax cuts to corporations? How does that line up with cutting a lot of the social safety net that these working class people um, are relying on? I don't know if the MAGA agenda is going to survive because I don't know that it ever was Republican and I don't know that Republicans are going to know how to preach that same message with their without their lead pastor (laughs) at the pulpit. So, Jose from El Paso, do you have high hopes for the vaccines that have made it into the news? I am not a scientist, Jose. I talk to friends of mine who are doctors, and I've told them to let me know which one they're going to take, and that's the one I'll take, too. Um, I'm not, you know, I I try to stay hopeful uh, all the time. And so, yes, the answer to that is I do have high hopes. Lachlan from Chicago. Ooh, this is a good one. Has COVID scarred our collective psyche? If so, where do we get therapy? Whew, I'm going to piss some people off with my answer to this. I do think it has, yeah. Um, and I think, that, I think that there is a point when someone goes into a depression where it's very difficult to get them out of it. Um, I also think that when it's very difficult to change a habit and when a new habit is created, it's very difficult to get out of it. I think that the country has gone into a, listen, this is just, if you're still sticking with us at this point, you realize all of these are just my opinions and they don't hold any more weight than, (laughs) they're not worth any more than you paid for this podcast, uh, which is nothing. So, um, I think we have, as a nation, kind of gone into a depression. Um, we've been stuck inside. We've been stuck at home for uh, since March. Um, many of us have gotten into new routines. This this podcast itself was supposed to start out as a panel, um, and we 
went home, took it online for the first few weeks, and then essentially just realized, listen, this is the new way we're going to do it. Um, And people get stuck in their new habits and their new routines, and it's very tough to get out of a rut. Folks who have lost work, um, can't find work, it's very difficult to motivate to get back into trying when you just don't feel like there's an end in sight. I think that there is a depression. I think that there are probably some teachers who hated leaving the classroom at first, but then after three months of teaching in their pajamas, <laughs> it's easier to just stick with that than to than to go back because we're, we're now in the new normal, and I think that getting out of the new normal is going to be tough. Um, I, I was hopeful and still remain hopeful that 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 lightning strike that is going to shock us all back into doing, you know, to getting back to a normal routine would be the uh, election of Joe Biden um, and the inauguration of a new president. Um, I do hope that the sun rises on January 20th and we all are able by that point to start feeling more comfortable. Um, and hopefully the vaccines line up with that. But you know, getting out of a depression is depression is something very easy to fall into and very hard to get out of. And I think collectively we have as a nation gotten depressed. And God, please let the next administration be able to pull us out of it. Khaleesi from Charlotte. Hey, Charlotte. Um, will the defund the police movement have a lasting impact on our discourse? <sighs> I, I, I hope I, I'm one of those Democrats who agrees with Abigail Spanberger. I hope we never use those words again. <laughs> Defund the police, I think, was destructive. Um, I, in, in terms of the movement, what did it achieve? You know, I, I know in my hometown, it achieved renaming a middle school and achieved taking down some statues, but none of the structural changes within the the law enforcement arena that needed to be done got done. Um, I feel like we are very big on band-aids nowadays and not at all motivated to do the structural work. Um, And I feel like a lot of political capital was wasted uh, this past summer in the wake of, you know, some of the murders that we saw uh, by policemen. And I think that we lost some of the political capital because we spent it on things that, that, weren't as weren't as pressing and important as making some of the structural changes like taking the power to prosecute police officers out of the hands of of district attorneys like taking some of the authority away from police unions um uh you know i get very frustrated about this and if anybody who's listened to this show has heard me get frustrated about it um several times so i don't need to dig down into it but i feel like we've got to be better about taking the the opportunities that we have and the things that we could get a lot of agreement from people on and, and not wasting it on superficial changes. Gideon, Gideon from somewhere in Minnesota, are there any actions or policies from president Trump that you wouldn't mind if Biden kept? Um, let me say this. I think that some of the things that president Trump spoke about um, said he wanted to prioritize were exciting, even to me, you know, taking some of the authority away from pharmaceutical companies to to jack up prices. Um, now, how far that got through Congress is a whole different thing. It didn't, he did a lot of it by executive order, but, but weakening the stranglehold on pharma, pharmaceuticals 
from the pharmaceutical companies, I think, is a good thing to do. Um, on the spot right now, he talked a lot about infrastructure, um, wanted to build the infrastructure and improve the infrastructure in the country. Again, that did not actually make it through Congress. You know, President Trump ran on, pop, on a populist platform. And some of those populist ideas, several of them, were very progressive ideas. He spent more money than any president in my lifetime ever has. Um, he wasn't a conservative. He wasn't a Republican. And I think sometimes there were some things that he did that Democrats probably would have appreciated if they weren't as interested in in demonizing him. And trust me, I think he deserved to be demonized. But I think that there were some things that that even Bernie Sanders agreed with him on. They were closer on free trade and and the harms that it caused to our economy than other people in the Republican Party were to Donald Trump. So, um, Lee from New York City, how do you handle... I'm going to ask, ask both of, answer both of these questions. Um, Lee from New York City asks, how do you handle the criticism of being in the public eye? Joe from Toronto asks, is it harder to be a performer or a politician? Um, I'll ask, I'll try to answer them both. How do you, I mean, is it harder to be a performer or a politician? Uh, probably harder to be a politician because uh, if you're a performer, what you say, you can, you can just keep your mouth closed and you don't have to respond to certain um certain hot button issues a lot of a lot of performers stay away from all things politics probably smart on their part probably less stressful for them um handling the criticism of being the public guy listen if you knew me 17 years ago <laughs> you'd be surprised i'm still alive today because it's not easy always you know i it wasn't easy um for me at the very beginning i had a really hard time dealing with being in the public eye i was not in the public eye at all in October of 2002. And then by May of 2003, I was one of the most well-known people in America <laughs> for that period of time. And it, it was a jolt. Um, and it was all just at the rise of just at the beginning um, of the internet. And I remember we used to go downstairs, all of us um, on who were on Idol together, we used to go downstairs inside the La Meridian Hotel in uh Beverly Hills, and there was one computer in the in the hotel, and we would we would take turns. Usually, Trinice was down there first, looking on the message boards to see what they were saying about what our performances were the week before. Um, and so we we had to deal with people talking smack about us online. I had to deal with several years of you know open and rampant speculation about me being gay. Um, at partially, part of that happened while I was still figuring it out too. At some point, you just stop giving a shit. I mean, there's really no other way to solve it. And and perhaps I went through so much of it early on that now I really can not care and I can laugh when I see somebody say something mean. But, you know, I do think that there are people who have a point when they say, <laughs> some, some folks are snowflakes. I don't like that term, but there there is some validity to it because I do think that we get a little too sensitive nowadays, and maybe that's just me, but, you know, I was outed <laughs> on a national stage um, 
before I was ready to be. Uh, I was out to friends and people who I knew and worked with, but I was not ready to be outed nationally. Um, but that happened to me, um, and I survived it. Um, I came out and lost a huge chunk of the support that I had um, in my career prior to it, and I survived it. Somebody, some, somebody says on Twitter is just not going to hurt me. Sticks and stones. I'd say I joke to people that sometimes I want to start a pack called Sticks and Stones Pack that just donates money to candidates who stop worrying about shit people say. Um, I do think we've gotten very overly concerned. And again, maybe it's just my experience and understanding I survive it. That that old mantra that our parents told us, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is so true. I just don't care what words people use at all. Um, and and if, if we give words too much power now, I think that's my, that's my philosophy there. Um, and interestingly enough, the next question that I see, um, I'm skipping one, but Jane from San Diego says, have we reached the limits of political correctness or is this just the beginning? Jane, I hope to God we've reached it. <laughs> Um, you know, I talked a little bit last week um, with John Idarola on on the podcast here about the power that we give to words. Um, and I think that there has been an overcorrection. Um, a few weeks ago, several, several weeks ago, we were um, we had guests on the show and Several weeks ago, if you if you play way back, Tara Setmeyer was on the show, and I asked her um, about some of the the political correctness and the the liberal outrage on Twitter. And and she made a point that has stuck with me. She said that she thought that some of it was overcorrection, that Donald Trump had had brought out such frightening words and and motives on the far, far right reaches of the Republican Party that she felt that perhaps some of this political correctness and this overcorrection from the left was a result of that. And that maybe after we move past this Trump era, that we might revert to the mean a little bit. I hope that's the truth, because I do think that some of the political correct demands, the the demands for political correctness have hurt uh, us as Democrats. Um, I do think we give our opponents too much power when we get offended by the things they say. There are lots of things that are done. There are lots of laws that are passed. There are lots of policies that are implemented that actually have tangible, real-world effect on people. And we should be upset about any policy or any law that has a tangible impact on someone. But I personally don't like to waste my outrage on words. Um, James from Louisville uh, asks, should social media companies be considered private publishers or a new town commons? Um, listen, I think it'd be very difficult to, to say that social media companies are private publishers because they don't hire the people who write on them. Um, they are essentially the new town square. Um, they do provide people an opportunity to to exercise their right to freedom of speech. 
Um, I think there's a bit of self-righteousness, though, on the part of the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world to believe that they have no ability or right to censor what is said. At the end of the day, it is a town commons, but it's a private town commons. So, you can let anybody in, but you don't have to let them say whatever they want to say in your house, you know? And And at the end of the day, Facebook... I don't think we can hold, I personally don't think we can hold it accountable for what is said on its platform. Um, The people who say that need to be held accountable themselves. But I do think Facebook has the right um, to censor whoever they want to. Um, And I think they should exercise it more. Personally, again, this is me trying to ruin any, any chance I have to do to run for anything again since this is all on the record, but I don't care. Um, personally, I think that the the Constitution of the United States gives you the right to free speech. It protects you from the government punishing you based on something you say. I don't think the right to freedom from accountability is in the constitution though or the bill of rights um i don't think the first amendment says you have freedom from any accountability whatsoever and i i personally would be perfectly fine if someone were able to make a constitutionally sound argument for requiring places like facebook or twitter to only allow people to use their real names and photos. I think that a big part of the reason that people will say and do whatever they want to and say some, like, throw such vitriol around is because they can be free from accountability. And if if I were Facebook or Twitter, I would demand that people authenticate themselves. I had to authenticate myself for Twitter. I've got the blue check mark because I've proved that I am Clay Aiken and I am the person in the picture. And I can't, I can't fake and pretend that I'm somebody else. Um, I think Twitter should exercise that and and make everyone use their real name and photo. If they did that, I think people would calm the fuck down just a little bit. See, I just got us that little explicit rating and I had done so well until then. Um, what media sources do you like, trust the most and why? Dan from California asked that. This is a tough question for me, uh, especially this year. I have, I think I have for the first time seen or felt a bias in the media this year more than I ever wanted to admit. Um, and I don't think it's a liberal bias, to be honest with you. I don't think that the CNNs and the MSNBCs and the Foxes of the world are biased politically. I think they're biased by money and ratings and clicks. Um, And so, I mean, CNN, I don't think has a liberal slant. I think that they talk about what their viewers want. You know, Um, they're not followers. They're not leaders. They're followers. You know, instead of telling people what they need to hear, they tell people what they're most interested in hearing. Currently, we're back to being that being about coronavirus. Um, prior to November 3rd and the week or two prior to November 3rd, it was all about politics. They talked about that. Um, so I, I've, I've struggled quite a bit. And anyone who listens knows that I took a media diet, a news diet um, between March and the end of October. Uh, and I cut out everything from my news feed online as well. And I only 
allow the New York Times, the Washington Post, the News and Observer, which is the newspaper here in, in Raleigh, um, I do allow Christian Science Monitor, which I trust is pretty straight down the line, NPR, Associated Press, um, mostly just the big and most reputable things. But I think that I, you know, we have to be very careful even with them, or I have to be very careful. You do whatever you want to do. Um, I personally try to have to be very careful with them because some of their stuff is analysis. Some of their stuff is opinion. It's not always labeled exactly correctly. <laughs> um, so I just think that a lot of what we read online nowadays, the headlines are written to get you to click. I mean, the, the, the basis for most of it is to get folks to click on it. Scooter from Vancouver asks, were you afraid of mudslinging and reputational attacks when you ran for office? Oh, God, no. All my mud had been fully slung by then. So <laughs> I wasn't really, there was nothing, all my skeletons were out in the middle of the floor. Um, again, I kind of handled that um, with... Who cares? I mean, I really, I really kind of do. And I know a lot of people say that they don't care about what they read about themselves online. I will be the first to tell you, I really used to. I did truly used to get bothered by it. I try to toughen, I pretend I didn't, but I did get bothered by it. I just, I don't care anymore. Maybe that's because I don't get written about as much. If I started getting written about more, I might be bothered more, but um, it's kind of nice to not be as famous as it used to be. <laughs> John from New Mexico. What's the best way to handle a political attack? Um... I guess it depends on what the attack is, you know, if there's validity to it, if there, because John also says personal or on policy, if there's validity to it, and if it's a policy position that you still stand by, then I think you just face it with truth and honesty, right? Yes, that's how I feel. That's what I voted on. That's how I believe, what I believe. I'll own it. Sal from Tampa said, um, where do you think we get our most of our political opinions? Ooh. Damn, Sal, that's tough. I have no idea. Where do you think we get most of our political opinions from? How did yours form? Um, I don't think that that question can be answered in one way for anybody, Sal. Um, I think people get them from friends and family. They get them from, unfortunately nowadays, all too often, whoever they're watching on the news or whatever they're reading on Twitter, I think. Um, I think the the people whose political opinions I would trust and respect the most um, are probably those who got them from their own personal experience. And that means that I have to respect some folks who I disagree with. Um, you know, Anna Paulina Luna was on two weeks ago. I've come back to her a few times in this, but she was on a few weeks ago and we were talking about her positions and how she feels about guns. Um, and one of the reasons that she feels the way she does about gun ownership is because of experiences in her life that made her feel unsafe. I mean, some pretty traumatic experiences in her life that made her feel unsafe, made her want to be able to protect herself with a gun. I don't, I don't feel the same way about guns as Anna Paulina Luna does, but I respect that that is a position that she came to through experience. I think I gleaned my political positions in large part based on what I talked about a little earlier um, 
understanding somehow that I was in an oppressed class, I think, in some ways, I'm still a white male. That certainly doesn't hurt in American society. But as a gay man, knowing that there was something about me that didn't quite, wasn't going to quite jive in the early 90s in North Carolina made me feel a little bit more empathy for my black friends who I knew were also oppressed. Um, and and that expanded to me looking at economic policy and realizing, okay, wait, when we help those folks who are at the bottom, they spend money and it goes to the people in the middle and the middle people spend money and it goes to the people at the top and we all, you know, it all works out. Um, so that's kind of where I got mine. Folks who got their opinions or came to their uh, political opinions or positions based on their own life experience, even if I disagree with them, I have to respect them. Um, if you came to your political opinion based on something you heard somebody say, or based on something you saw on the news, or based on information that you heard somewhere but weren't that but were too lazy to go actually look up and see if it was true, I have less respect for that. And unfortunately, I think more and more people are reading the headline and not the entire article, um, and forming opinions based on not taking the time to do any research. So that scares me. Mark from New Haven, Connecticut. Um, many people think Republicans are the party of the rich, but the tech elite going with Biden, but with the tech elite going with Biden, is that still the case? Mark from New Haven, I would argue that I don't think that many people believe that Republicans are the party of the rich anymore. I think in the 80s, the 70s, the 80s, especially the Reagan era, the Bush senior era, um, and even parts of the 90s, Republicans definitely were the party of the rich um, and the elites and the Connecticut snobs, perhaps. I mean, it's crazy to look at the political map and realize that in 1980 and 88 and even 92, states in the Northeast were were Republican. Connecticut, where you're from, Mark, and uh Massachusetts and Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine and New York, these were Republican strongholds because they were where rich people were. Uh, Democrats have lost touch with the working class base of the party that put them in, you know, in a position of strength and power for so long. I don't think that people think, listen, maybe that's just my opinion. I, where I live in North Carolina, and again, I can only speak for here. But since we're a pretty purple state, um, I think that there's a good dichotomy <laughs> um, and we got a good cross-section of the country here. I don't think people think Republicans are the party of the rich anymore. I do, because I know that that's who they're satisfying and serving. Um, <laughs> but I think I think a lot of people and, and Democrats' problem is that they have let Republicans take over this mantle of being the party of the working man. Um, again, roll your eyes all you want to. I think it's ridiculous myself. But you even see Marco Rubio making comments about how the Republicans need to appeal, continue to appeal to the working class. To me, I don't know how you do that when your policies benefit the rich, when your tax cuts benefit the rich, when, you know, your your policies on free trade allow companies to send the jobs overseas. I don't know how you speak out of both sides of your mouth like that, but but people realize that the Trump base is not rich. <laughs> um, and the Democrat base, unfortunately, 
tends to be, well, fortunately, tends to be very educated, but but it also tends to be sort of rich because it's educated more. And it's, folk, it's you know, it's located in these cities like New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago and Atlanta. Um, it, it's a real damn mess. Uh, trip from Cleveland. That was a great ending to that answer. Trip from Cleveland. Do you think Trump's outreach to the Black and Latinos communities had an impact? Was it the message or the use of surrogates? Um, well, Trip, I don't remember any that many Black and Latino surrogates. Um, I mean, you had Diamond and Silk, who I don't think many Black people claim. Um, and who, interestingly enough, I'm pretty sure voted for me when I ran for Congress because Diamond and Silk were in my district and they were Democrats back in 2014. Um, <laughs> so I find that funny. Uh, and I asked them um, not long ago, I interviewed them for some some other show, and um, I asked them if they voted for me in 2014 and they refused to answer, which tells me they did. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, outreach to Black and Latino communities had an impact. Um, again, I... Listen, we know that Donald Trump got a higher percentage of the black vote and Latino vote than most any Republican has in years. I do not believe that he had an impact, that that his outreach to them on racial issues had an impact, because I don't think anybody believed that he was going to do a better job on race issues. I just don't believe that even the, even the black voters who voted for him I don't believe that they thought he was going to do a better job on race issues. I don't believe the Latino voters who voted for him thought this is a man who wants to protect Hispanic Americans. I don't for a second think there's anything he could say that would make them believe that. What I think did have an impact was those voters were sick and tired of the only policies being discussed with them were racial were racial policies. I think that there is a segment of the black community and the Hispanic community who are tired of having politicians on either side simply pander to them about racial issues. And they don't want to hear it. And I think that those folks I think that those folks voted for Trump not because they thought he'd do better on those issues, but because they thought he'd do better on other issues. Uh, and and Listen, that's just my position, but what do I know? Not much. Nate from New York. Will you ever trust, will you trust polling ever again? Um, I find this question fascinating, Nate. I'm going I'm to just give you shit for it. Sorry. The polls weren't wrong. <laughs> I mean, they weren't this time around. I mean, any one poll is not to be trusted, but if you look at sites like 538 or sites like, um, um, uh, Real clear politics, places that do a polling average, places where they take all the polls and they average them together because you can't trust just one poll. They're always outliers. Those sites actually got every state right. Um, you know, North Carolina, real clear, I'm sorry, the 538 average of North Carolina said that Trump was going to win by maybe a point. The 538 average of Georgia said Biden was going to win by maybe a point. The 538 average of Florida said it was a pretty much a tie. Like no state, they with my, if I'm not mistaken, 538 did not have the wrong call 
in any state, um, except for perhaps Florida. And even that one was within the margin of error. So, uh, you know, I think we've gotten to where we all spent. If you're like me, you refreshed your browser three times a day to see where the polling average was. And we saw consistent leads by Joe Biden. And the leads were so consistent that I think we all were hoping and expecting and praying that it would be a blowout. Um, And it just didn't happen to be a complete blowout. But Biden did win more states than he needed. He did win Arizona and Georgia. He flipped Arizona. He flipped Georgia. He flipped Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And all of the polls were pretty accurate about that when averaged together. So I, I feel a little bad for pollsters who are getting criticized as if they had gotten it wrong. They didn't really get it wrong. Steph from California. Why do you think the Democratic leadership is so old? Is the squad the future of the party? Um, I hope to God that the squad is not the future of the party, uh, at least not in their current form. You know, in 20 years, maybe they will be the future of the party, but I don't hope they're not the immediate future of the party. Um, What is this problem with having old people in politics? I don't get that. Um, I don't get the, it's just like we're constantly saying we hate politicians, we hate politicians, but as soon as someone who's not a politician runs for politics, they don't have enough experience. Like, when did, when did being old and experienced become a liability, um, (laughs) in, in government? I, I am not someone who subscribes to that philosophy personally. I just, I don't. Do I think that young people shouldn't be in politics? Hell no, of course they should be. Absolutely. I'm glad there are young people in politics. But I personally don't have a problem with the president being older. It's not an entry-level job. You know, I don't have a problem. I'm actually thrilled with the, as we saw for four years, it's not an entry-level job, but I'm thrilled with the idea that we have someone who's about to become president who is who has spent 40 years as the leadership of the, the the chair of the Judiciary Committee and the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee and who has spent a long time getting to know these issues that he's about to face. I love the fact that even when the administration was not allowing his transition to move forward, he was unbothered by it because, you know, he knows the, he knows how it works. He knows where the bathrooms are. He's not stressed out about it because he's not going to have to learn on the job. You know, Kamala Harris spending time as his vice president, that's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing to be able to have some of that on-the-job experience. And, you know, I think that it's going to prepare her to be a nominee for the, the nominee of the party at some point brilliantly. I don't get the criticism of having someone old in leadership. Diane Feinstein just decided this week that she would give up her chairmanship of the judici- her, her ranking member position on the Judiciary Committee. I think that's a shame. I think that it's especially a shame that she was sort of forced out for the horrible sin of being nice to a Republican. Um, you know, she she hugged Lindsey Graham and she had a collegial relationship with him. She she didn't agree with him on anything, but she tried to be nice. God forbid she makes an attempt to get along with someone she disagrees with. I I am not 
on the side of people who think that older folks should not be involved in politics. I'm, I'm glad that they are there. Um, let's see, where was I? Uh, Robert from Buffalo asks, can Trump's brand survive the word loser or will he do just fine on TV? Listen, (laughs) I kind of laugh when someone talks about how Trump has now lost and how is he? I, I, that, that I'm not. I'm not laughing at you, Robert from Buffalo. I'm. I just think it's funny that anybody thinks that he's not going to survive this. He's not going to. He's not going to let anybody tag him with it. You know, he he ran his entire campaign in 2016 on how he's a winner. He, we're going to get so sick of winning, 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 winning. But he had not won that much in his life. He went bankrupt how many times? His casinos went bankrupt. The truth doesn't necessarily matter. We do realize this, right? Um, It doesn't matter to Donald Trump, and it doesn't necessarily matter to his supporters. Um, His Trump brand survived all those bankruptcies and the, you know, closing of his hotels and all that stuff. This isn't going to bother him either. (laughs) So, yeah, it'll survive it. He doesn't care. Um, Mary from Baltimore, if the Supreme Court overturned any of the election results, would you go along with their decision? I, that, that's a hypothetical. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Um, and I will stake Mary from Baltimore. Write us. If that happens, you write us in, and I'll send you a check for $1,000 because it ain't going to happen. Um, so I don't need to answer that. Allie from D.C., do you think Washington, D.C. should be a state or perhaps a prison colony? <laughs> um this is a tough one. Uh, I understand why Democrats would like for it to be a state, certainly. Um, having two uh, more Democrat, guaranteed Democrat senators would not be a bad thing. Uh, I wouldn't mind that at all. Um, I can understand why Republicans would not want it to be a state, because having two Democrat senators is not something they want. Um the argument that the founders of this country specifically said that they did not believe that the capital should be located in any state, I think has got to hold some weight. Um, I think that there, that it was a logical choice on their part. They had the capital in Philadelphia for a while. They had it in New York for a while. They specifically said the capital of this country should not be in any state. And I understand that argument. That said, the people who live in that city, and there weren't that many living in the city at the time the the country was founded, the people living in that city should have a voice in Congress, absolutely should have a voting voice in Congress, should have an equal voting voice in Congress. And I think that there is probably some sort of, God forbid I say the word compromise, but there's probably some sort of compromise. Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is their delegate in the House, should absolutely be able to vote without question. I do believe that they deserve some representation. Perhaps they should not be a state, but perhaps there is a middle ground where they have representation in Congress, but don't have the same rights as a state otherwise. I don't know the answer to that, but I think that there's, I think it's probably not as black and white as 
are they a state or are they not a state? That's just my position. Um, Jennifer from Columbus, how can people get better at speaking and publicly performing? (laughs) (laughs) I am not the person to ask. You've seen how much I ramble here, Jennifer. Michael from Maryland, how do you think history will judge the Trump era? (sighs) Shit. Honestly, Michael, as long as it's history and not present, I don't give a crap. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just make it history. Um, I, I don't think that, I don't think it's going to be like Truman where we turn around that, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be like Truman where we turn around years later and realize how great he was. Um, <laughs> I think, I think we're going to, it's going to be like Harding where we turn around and realize, holy crap, he was as bad as we thought he was. Um, Jerry from California asks, if Trump has committed crimes in office, would you want him pardoned a la Nixon? Ooh, Jerry, I got in a, discussion, um, a disagreement. It wasn't an argument, but it was definitely a disagreement with a friend of mine about this the other day. Would I want him to be pardoned? The schadenfreude that I would receive from seeing him jailed um, is unmatched. <laughs> you know, would I like to see him in jail and humiliated? Absolutely. But that's selfish on my part. Um, I would like to see him suffer in some way for what he has, I, I think, caused. But that's selfish. And I, while I don't know that I'd like to see him pardoned, I also don't know that I want, that I hope for Joe Biden or... Andrew Cuomo in New York to waste any time on trying to prosecute him. And I know that will make plenty of people mad. But I say it because I, for, because of a whole bunch of reasons. One, I don't know that the best way to heal in this country is to continue to live in the past. Um, I think that also the chances, the likelihood of a jury of 12 people being able to unanimously find him, find a former president of the United States guilty is pretty slim. You know, unfortunately, the prosecutor's not going to get to choose the jury. (laughs) The prosecutor and the defense attorney get to choose together. And the the chances and likelihood of finding a 12-person jury to convict a former president of the United States is just, I don't think it's high enough. And I think what I worry about, honestly, is that it makes him a martyr, it gives him something else to run on. It gives him something else to fire up his base with. It, it allows these news organizations to, to keep him on the air for another one, two years. It, it makes Joe Biden's presidency not about healing the nation, but it makes Biden's presidency about locking up his political opponents, which is sort of what Donald Trump has been accused of, rightfully accused, of trying to do for the past several years himself. You know, does Donald Trump deserve to get away with some of the, if he, if he has committed tax fraud, if he, has, if he has broken laws, does he deserve to get away with it? No, he doesn't. Absolutely not. And God, put him under the jail. 
<laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Take his phone away, too, so he can't tweet. But I think there's a reason we threw Osama bin Laden's body in the ocean. You know, and the reason that the, that the Obama administration and the military chose to do that was because they did not want to create a place where people could pilgrimage to, to pay respects to a martyr. And I don't know that this country can handle creating a martyr. And that's what would happen, you know. I, I think we've got to dispense with any notion, and I'll, and I'll get, use this to get to the last question, but I think we've got to dispense with any notion that some evidence is going to come out that's going to convince <laughs> Donald Trump's supporters and followers that he's been a bad person. The, the prosecutor in New York is not going to come with some smoking gun that anyone is going to believe makes Donald Trump guilty. You know, it's, his supporters are going to stay with him. I don't want to give him, I don't want to have Rudy Giuliani on TV for the next two years doing leaky hair dye press conferences and spouting out nonsense on TV in a platform where they can say that Democrats and the establishment are just on a witch hunt to punish Donald Trump. I don't think it's worth it to me. Do I want Joe Biden to pardon him? No, and I don't think he will, because I don't think Donald Trump deserves to be pardoned. But I sort of, I sort of hope that he doesn't push a prosecution of him. That's just my belief, only because I just don't think the country can survive it. Um, and I think it will only pour water on the gremlin, <laughs> and it'll only make him stronger. Um, the last question is from Bobby from Atlanta. Um, Bobby with an I, I'm going to assume is a girl. So she asks, how do you handle discussing politics with friends and family? Has it ever led to a fight? Um, and Bradley from Phoenix asks, what's been the best way you've found to persuade someone on a political issue? Um, Bobby and uh, Bradley, that's sort of what this podcast has tried to be about. Um, I don't always discuss politics with family because uh, if you've listened to this show, you know that I tend to be in the very, very slim minority in my family when it comes to politics. Um, but when I do, I have found that trying to persuade them um, is not effective when I tell them they're wrong. And having conversations with family and friends don't lead to fights very often because I rarely tell someone that they're wrong. I just don't think it's effective. And I, and I say that, I'll ask this question. I'll tell you, I'll, have, I'll ask Bobby and Bradley the question and all of you listening when is the last time someone got you to change your mind by telling you you were wrong? It's just, we don't do that. It's human nature. We don't get pushed back into a corner and then pee on the floor, you know? When we get backed into a corner, we swing. When we get told we're wrong, it's a human reflex to react. Even if, even if later we realize, oh crap, I was wrong there. 
I should apologize. I mean, we, we know how to do that. But when someone comes at you telling you you're wrong and you're bad, very few people are so, human beings are so weak-kneed that they will crumble and say, oh my God, you're right, you're right, I'm wrong. Most people react defensively. It's just human nature. And so I usually only persuade people by asking them more questions, trying to get them to flesh out their opinions. You know, listen, I've I've convinced several members of my family um, <laughs> that they do actually support Obamacare <laughs> by just asking them how they would craft a real good healthcare policy. Okay, well, so so you don't like Obamacare, that's fine. So let's start from scratch. Do we think that people who are over the age of under the age of 26 should stay on their family's health care. Check. Okay, great. Do we agree that people with pre-existing conditions should not be denied health care? Oh, good. Check. You know, find the places we agree and then slowly say, okay, but God, how are those health care insurance companies going to be able to afford to cover all of those folks with pre-existing conditions? Gosh, that's going to be really expensive for them. Um, I mean, especially if nobody will sign up for health care if they don't have, if they're not sick. And I mean, and you can sign up anytime you want to because they can't deny you. So you can just wait till you're sick and then you can sign up, right? Well, that sucks. That's not fair. So essentially, you know, and I ask questions and <laughs> can't tell you how many of my family members have gotten there and they've built a health care platform and a health care program, at least three specific family members. One of them is almost QAnon level um, right wing, <laughs> but he himself built a healthcare platform from scratch and then got pissed at me when I told him, oh my God, well, that's exactly the same as Obamacare. <laughs> he got mad at me for it. I mean, listen, he probably, he certainly didn't vote for Obama the next time around, but I, you know, he realized that, well, it's all, I mean, well, it's, uh, that's fine, but all the other stuff is awful, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, you're not going to get anywhere by telling someone they're wrong. And going into a discussion, assuming that you're going to change somebody's mind. And I think that's where we get frustrated. And we've had that discussion here on this podcast um, over the course of this year, that going into a conversation anticipating that your goal is to change somebody's mind is only going to lead to frustration. This was a special episode. Um, I don't always think that I don't really, I mean, listen, everybody thinks their opinion's important. I don't think my opinion's important enough for um, an entire episode, but um, we had a lot of questions, so we decided to go ahead and do it. Um, it's been a very interesting 40 weeks that we've spent with you on this podcast, um, and we're incredibly thankful to you for um, for joining us on this incredibly interesting journey, and we hope you'll stick with us. If you've liked the podcast, please subscribe. Please like it, literally. Um, <laughs> you can follow Politicon on Instagram or Twitter, at Politicon, um, and uh, and like, subscribe, rate, review. Tell your friends about um, our goals <laughs> to try to get along with each other um, and what we're trying to do with this this show and encourage them to listen, like, review, rate, and subscribe as well. And we will be back next week. Thanks to you for listening. Have an incredible Thanksgiving. Um, and we'll see you next week for another episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? <laughs>